life is a state of mind. What's the most you've ever lost on a coin toss? You don't play by the same rules. Sue me for having a life. Let's talk about something important. This is the Brian Suits Show. You're listening to a best of the Brian Suits Show on AM 770 KTTH. So King County, where are the kids? The, the kids are not in King County anymore, or rather they're not, certainly not in Seattle. And there's an interactive map on the uh, Seattle Times. And it affects, you know, where schools are going to be and the whole thing. Um, you know what I did Saturday morning? Of course not. You have no way of knowing. But it's a rhetorical question. I went to, you know, uh, arguably one of the best off-leash dog parks on the West Coast. There's Marymore. But if you want to keep driving a little bit, the one at Mount Sai is amazing. Three Rivers. Ama- I posted from there Saturday morning at Brian Dell Junk on the Instagram. Um, phenomenal park. Now, when I lived up there, it was a de facto, I won't tell if you won't tell, one of those kind of places. And it was great. Now, you can really actually park and let your dog out. Just keep them out of the muddy water. Um, it's, a, it's a great part. And there was a, there was a woman who helped me. The three-footed dog, Wyatt, he, he's, a, he's, a, he's tons of fun. I needed help getting him back in the car. So is that North Bend? It's between the Bucolic town of Suquamish and North Bend. Okay. It's up against the middle fork of the Suquamish River, uh, hence the Three Forks uh, name. And at the foot of Mount Sai, it is it's epic, beautiful, clear day. You know, so you're between the mountains and stuff. And uh, and the, the woman, so we're talking about the place. And I said, you know, thanks for helping me with with the uh, fatty, fatty pork boy. And uh, she did. And I said, now, do you know about Mary Moore? And she goes, yeah, I, I go past her. She was from Seattle. Well, like most Seattleites, has dogs and not kids. Um, and came up there early in the morning, Saturday morning. I took me an hour and a half to drive up there, but it was worth it. And so Seattle Times with the story about where are all the kids in King County. Uh, because one of the reasons I was up there was I was kind of reconning it. And, man, I got to tell you, I don't know, because I'm about to uh, vote on a school levy tomorrow in America's county. But I was talked out of looking at Suquamish when I moved back here, because everyone's like, oh, no, the east side's all blown out. And that's all, you know, well, yeah, I got news for it. Suquamish, there's still an old town Suquamish. And that high school is five stars. It looks like a community college. And, I mean, it was a nice school last time I lived there. But now it's a nice school with a whole lot of money and a, you know, uh, tribal casino up the hill, you know, kicking into it and the whole thing. But I was really surprised. And when I lived there, I was working at night next to the at the, the door down from us from 9 to 1, 9 p.m. to 1. And total reverse commute. And on uh, so anyway, I, I would I would defend that and say, okay, I, I think the overdevelopment ends at the Sammamish Plateau. But it, what's really funny about this interactive "Where the Hell are the Kids" map is you you can tell on the east side where the new developments are and all that by what percentage of the of that area are are kids. Uh, and it's really interesting and. and 
and where the new schools are and, and stuff. By the way, you know, I'm always on about the demographics um, and stuff. I'm, I'm a total dork about that stuff. Wall Street Journal reminding me why I subscribed to it today. How China miscalculated its way to a baby bust. They're talking about the secondary effect of the one-child policy is still being felt. And it's now it's being felt because no one wants to have kids in China. No one wants to marry. No one wants to have kids. I mean, they're in a demographic tailspin, the scale of which no one saw in 1980 when they had a mathematic genius and uh, intercontinental ballistic missile uh, tech uh, work out why a one-child policy, uh, a couple a couple should be replaced by only one, and that'll take care of the overpopulation, which was the global warming of the 70s. And we're gonna have, soon we're going to have too many people to feed and, and the whole thing. Really interesting article about how China is demographically an afterthought. It's just that we got to wait 20 years. Um, b before that, uh, th that that occurs, and also by the way, the if it's if you have secondary and tertiary effects, a tertiary effect is a surplus of men, and that is why you're getting um, men born in the '80s crossing into the United States. They're fleeing a failed system. They're coming to a successful system. They want to contribute to a successful economy. Are there Chinese spies? Why would they put them through a a, a, a four nation foot a foot march? Why why not fly them in like they've been doing for thirty years? No, the guys crossing the border are the ones who have chosen to to, to sever the ties. It's pretty crazy how we're 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 uh, if, if labor is what we need, then we're if there's a benefit. To China's one-child policy, it's that uh, we America is going to be fixed for labor for the next ten years. Because I mean, you all understand somebody has to pay into Social Security, and that's not going to be happening in Japan, Italy, and China. Now, within ten years, there's going to be more retirees than active workers, and that's when you get upside down. And that's when bad scenes happen and stuff. It's not going to happen here uh, ever. But, you know, people like me are just saying, just at least sign the clipboard on your way in. You know, don't just sneak in. And don't TikTok where to sneak in and stuff like that. Somebody, somebody get all those kids that like some mammoths. Uh, AM770 KTTH, uh, Brian Suits here. Well, where the heck have all the kids gone in King County? King County may have hit peak kids, but if but but not really. What they really what, what Seattle Times means by that is Seattle, and I mean Seattle has been in a uh, kid desert for a long, long time. In in terms of percentage of areas, from Soto down to SeaTac, six point seven percent of the population kid. Uh, downtown Seattle, three percent, because it's no place to raise kids. Can't have dogs, can't have kids. Uh, but wait, there's more. Let me get to it. North Lake, uh, North Elliott Bay is all offices and grain elevators, the whole thing. And so that's where you get 2.5%, and 0.7%, really not. And then you get up to <clears throat> um, Magnolia, 
And, you know, where, where you see people buying uh, view, wealthy view homes, the, the, the percentage of kids in those areas really is not cracking 30%. Um, and in this interactive map, the more purple the segment is, the more kids there are. So guess where the purple corridor is? It goes from Lake Sammamish to North Bend. And, I mean, you, you, you that area... Uh, that I was in uh, on Saturday scoping out 37.6%. And by the way, kids are under eight people, persons that are under 18. Okay. That's our definition of the kids. Uh, but 37%. And then the most kiddie, kid, kid area is Pine Lake up on the plateau. 40.1% under 18. And that's where uh, that's where my kids' uh, cousins live, and I mean, there's a playground on every corner, like literally on on every corner. You can see that. Meanwhile, in in Seattle, certainly up the hill on Capitol Hill, uh, let's see that three point four percent. I you know I I gotta say I I don't know where the nearest school is and and for the record by the way down there in tomlin land uh and renton 35 percent lots of playgrounds on the burian renton mm -hmm. the whole thing sure. des Moines, um but not too far in you know you can't have a view on kids and in, 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 in seattle but i mean i don't i couldn't tell you if martians landed and said take us to your elementary school uh, within a tanky gas of where I am in South Lake Union, I don't know where one is. I mean, I mean, they don't, there is still a Seattle school district and they will certainly take your money uh, and stuff, but there, the, the shift in where the kids are uh, is a big, and I think I want to say the big uh, departure point was um, 20 years ago when the average satellite, there was more dogs than kids. There was more dogs per capita than kids. And I mean, that's a choice. That's a choice that, you know, when Seattle became high rise, high tech and all that, it stopped being a city with working class neighborhoods. The, there was a time when Wallingford and Ravenna, that was a day shift at Boeing. That's why you get those classic old houses. They're not big, and the bedrooms are smaller than what maybe you're used to at your gated community. But those were those were family houses. Those were houses with four kids or five kids or <clears throat> or or whatever. I remember seeing my the the Benoit twins went to their house once. Total, you know, classic old craftsman Seattle house, old gross cedar, the whole thing. They grew up in it. Um, their parents had owned the house for like 50 years, careers at Boeing. And at and they raised six kids out of that house. And go drive around Woodland Park. That used to be a kid-friendly neighborhood. Heavily kid-friendly. Anyway, closing out uh, that thought. Um, but this is pretty wild. I mean, the number of kids was increasing in King County for 40 years. And this is the first real major decline that we've seen on record. And as with any data point, surely the reasons for this are complex. And stop calling me surely. But don't you think the why is the most important thing you have to ask? I think a big part of it is that Seattle is where you maybe meet someone at work and then move 
to the sticks and have kids. You, but you know that you're not, you, you can't afford to, you think you can't afford to have kids, but the main thing is the city doesn't think you're having kids. Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't have kids in Seattle. I wouldn't have kids in Portland. And what's funny is, I mean, Portland is a very kid-friendly city. Parks all over the place, except that now they're like parks in Tacoma. There's needles and stuff like that. So it's just not a very uh, kid-friendly area. And so I says to myself as I'm driving through Suquamish, where are your homeless? Well, they're not there. They're not in North Bend either. Uh, I remember when I lived in Suquamish, there was a crazy dude. There was a town crazy dude, but he wasn't a threat. And he wasn't like sleeping in your doorway or yelling at you or screaming that robots are stealing his luggage or any of that. And I mean, anyone driving in can confirm this. Or, or rather, should I say, are you part of the, what's the over under on millions of Americans who don't report to work today? Oh, gosh. For Super Bowl flu. Let's go with 3 million. 16 million. What? Six, one, six million. Oh, my. Not 60, but one, six million. Get a grip. That's million with a M. Our society imbibes way too much. And this is a slight tangent, but did you see the waste management open for the PGA Tour turned into Animal House? They had to stop serving alcohol because everyone was so blitzed. They were yelling at players. They were sliding down like, it looked like Woodstock, you, you 1969. What, what, what was the opening of their commercial? It's societal decay. It's it's out of control, Brian. <laughs> it's insane. And anyways, back to the story of uh, kids decreasing in King But County I mean, it, it's funny. I know, I mean, we live where we live because in America's County, um, there are kids, uh, uh, people have kids, there's parks for the kids, and even if there's not parks for the kids, it's safe to walk around and the whole thing. And, uh, you know, in all of King County, I, I do know that West Seattle, no. Magnolia, nope. Ravenna, View District, Double Dog, no. And uh, part of it is a lack of government to create a civil society, an, an, a 24-hour civil society, Whereas, uh, you know, in some of the East east uh, neighborhoods, Sammamish and all that, it's still a civil society, mainly because uh, they empower their local police to not tolerate uh, drugs and crap and all that. Okay, I think some of the reasons you mentioned right there are, yes, part of the bigger picture here of why the amount of kids is on the decline in King County. I also think a part of the bigger picture here is that society-wide, kids are being viewed more as a burden and an impediment to my achievement of happiness yeah. and self-fulfillment as opposed to a gift and a reward that they truly are. I think there's been a generational shift in the view of children That was a, as if career advancement is the ultimate ends to life. Biggest life surprise to me is how cheap kids are from zero to like eight. Mm-hmm. Clothes are cheap unless you care about status, okay? But if you belong to a church or whatever, toys and all that, I was surprised at how cheap they are. But then again, we don't have dental problems or health problems or whatever. But but uh, I was really surprised that you know you know a third a tiny little third mouth was not that big of a deal. But people have this impression that no no you immediately need to start uh, you know that that uh, that annuity. Um, so they can access it uh, when when they're eighteen at Harvard and and like you know take it one year at a time, but no I I don't like I, I think I think it's an indicator when 
where you live is not as kid-friendly as it used to be. So there's that. But hold on. Look at Taylor Swift, right? The Super Bowl broadcast cut to her 20 times yesterday. She's an icon. She's loved by tens of millions of people, maybe hundreds of millions of people uh, around the world. She's, what, 34, 35 years old. Flew into LAX on Sunday morning. And it was confirmed. She's single. She's had about 16 boyfriends, no kids. Yeah. And she's held up as, like, a role model for young girls everywhere and things like that. And so people get these not-so-hidden messages about, well, what's a life well-lived? Well, she's got an amazing career. She makes hundreds of millions of dollars. She's an influencer. And so people go, well, that's the kind of life I want to aspire to have. She's having the time of her life. Look, she's chugging a beer on the Jumbotron and then embracing and one of the NFL's best tight ends after he wins the Super Bowl. Yeah, she, she has no a, an idyllic life. Yeah, there's no kiddos anywhere in that picture. But you watch... If she marries Kelsey and breaks up the Beatles and ruins the Chiefs, um, <laughs> she'll she'll have kids and there'll be albums about them. And then pretty soon all the kids will be having kids. And, and by the way, at, at the same time, um, out of wedlock marriage, I mean, out of wedlock pregnancy for teenagers is at a 40-year low. So, I mean, I'm glad about that. But if it's because they all want to, like a, keep a six pack and continuing being a diet influencer on Instagram, that's not healthy for a society. But then again, the one child policy wasn't healthy, and China's finding that that out the hard way. You're listening to a best of the Brian Suit Show. Seven seventy KTTH. Brian suits uh, here. The administration is trying as hard as they can to play down <clears throat> an Iranian uh, retaliatory or revenge strike uh, for the twin suicide bombing on the fourth martyrdom anniversary of the the when President Trump uh, killed the Iranian uh, general Qasem Soleimani, uh, January second, uh, two thousand twenty. And the Iranians are saying it was revenge for that against ISIS and the Israeli intelligence service Mossad that they hit targets in Syria. And then sort of out of left field, they hit uh, a a house, a large house in the city of Erbil in the north of Iraq in Kurdistan, where... The billionaire Peshra Desai uh, resided with his wife. Uh, so his uh, family was killed by the Iranians, and they called it a Mossad headquarters. Uh, someone with uh, with personal knowledge of Mr. Desai and this building and her bill with extensive uh, experience on the ground in, in Kurdistan 
is Tom B. Uh, you know I can't operate these things. Is it? Oh, there is. There's, uh, there's Tom. Okay, so uh, here's Tom Bigley. Thanks for joining us this morning. So, so Mr. Desai, he was the head of the Falcon Group, which was a military secure a Peshmerga Kurdish military security group. Yeah, um, he had a company called Empire too. It, most people just call him Pestra, Desai and Pestra Aga, a couple things. But Pestra, being a Peshmerga guy, he was the first son. So his name is Pestra. And uh, I worked with Pestra for a long time, 2005, six, seven, And I ran Falcon Security for him in Iraq. Uh, just, you know, a really wonderful guy. And uh, with my, um, my two IC, Tom Schaefer, who's actually been in contact directly with the people in Arabile over the last 24 hours. And just to correct a little bit of the reporting, there was only three civilians killed on site, and Pestra's wife and uh, several others were evacuated to Dubai. Pestra died um, around 1 o'clock in the morning with his daughter and his business partner. Um so, so the uh, it's, it's being they're calling it ballistic missiles, but the system that the Iranians uh, used were were launched from Iranian soil, and they broadcast video of the whole thing. But they're ballistic missiles when they're launched, but when they're you know they lose a couple stages, and the warhead that comes down is guided. And so, as I'm looking at on Telegram uh, channel, as I'm looking at the damage to the building in Erbil. Uh, it's all pretty localized. It's not like they level the, the neighborhood. They've launched four missiles, and there's four uh, four impacts on that building. So it really seems like they knew who was there. They they undoubtedly had eyes on the building, right? Oh yeah, I, and I don't know if they're if they're you know lazing that on site or if they're doing it some other way with a drone or something. I know that. They had some drone activity after the. So is that is that uh is that a blow to the U.S. Was that it seems to me like that's a sideways blow to the U.S. Taking out a, a really significant American ally like that uh, seems like a, a message from the Iranians to the U.S. Um, yeah, and and Petra was in direct support of the special operations guys that were working in. Syria, as the Peshmerga was, and so he's been in support of U.S. operations throughout my my acquaintance with him for the last twenty odd years. Uh, you know this Mossad thing. I, I'm a little bit leery of that. I know he was he's a businessman. I think he was selling oil to Israel through Iraq, which is kind of unusual. But Kurdistan is kind of a separate entity. So I think to get back at the U.S. with a supporter, and and they may not have known his his higher Barzani and the he's in the Barzani clan. What is it? He needs so, the president of the Kurdish, uh, the KRG, right. the, the Kurdish uh, right. autonomous area. Yeah, and and, and Petra's always been, uh, you know, in his crew. So they may not have known where Barzani was, and. They they took this. I, I you know that's speculation, of course, but yeah, he wasn't a he was an absolutely a pro American uh, supporter with U.S. contracts. We were the only U.S. Uh, or actually Iraqi company 
to run some of the operations that we ran in Baghdad. And, and in part because, you know, we had Americans running the security side of it, but it was a, it was a uh, completely owned Iraqi company and a lot of the staff were Iraqis. So I don't think they liked him. And I know in Kurdistan, he had a big voice in the pro-American side. And then, so if you're in, in, in Iran, if you wanted to strike a blow uh, to the U.S., but without killing an American, because there seems to be, the Iranians seem to be the, the, the following a, a pretty hard line on this. So they, they don't want to cross swords directly and kill American special operations guys in Syria or in northern Iraq. Shoot, shoot. Rockets and and little cruise missiles is one thing, but <clears throat> knowingly hitting where an American would be seems to be off limits to him. It, it, does this seem like a like something you would do to to be that close to be close but no no American? Yeah, I I mean that that's a plausible uh, assumption, and and again as a direct attack, obviously they've been hitting the American bases with uh, surrogates and other other activity in Syria and so forth. But, uh, you know, in our support of Israel and so on, um, it, it is just odd to me that they kind of mix this up with this ISIS attack based on what the ISIS guys supposedly took credit for in, in Iran. But I, I do think it's a direct uh, attack against the U.S. because this is one of their, probably their biggest supporter in Arabile. And I don't think there's any bigger guy than him other than Barzani. Because again, yeah, they were really quick last night to say, well, whatever this was, the U.S. consulate wasn't targeted. And it's like, but it's oh, really, yeah. but they said it's, but it's really imprecise. So in other words, they shot imprecise weapons and only by pure luck do you, did the U.S. consulate not, not get hit, but they sure hit what they aimed at. And that was the most pro-American guy, apparently, in her bill, I guess, right? Oh, absolutely. And and I think the accuracy of the attack is something that they wanted to, you know, display. I, I'm, I'm sure the Americans are aware of what their equipment could do. But now they're on a national stage, you know, showing pictures of accurate missile strikes and so forth. So, and, and like you had said that earlier, actually, but that's important to get out. And again, it's a U.S. ported or a guy that supports the U.S. directly. And and it is a little bit less. I know the U.S. is playing it down a little bit on the State Department side right now. But I think that's just um, quiet before the storm. I think somebody is going to react to this directly because the first time they've fired these off of Iranian soil. Now, they have hit the U.S in other phases in Baghdad and so forth. And, you know, a long time ago, the, the weapon that killed Guy Baratari was a, was an EFP out of Iran. So they've been supporting activity in uh, Iraq for a long time. Um, but just to make a let me make one point. This is a really, um, this, this Estra was a, was a very, uh, not just patriotic, but a very upstanding businessman in the community and really well liked across the board. Um, I, I, it really bothers me what happened here. So, um, I, I will say that 
I got 100% support out of this guy, and I was um, really devastated by this news. Well, in, 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 in my limited experience in that part of the world, the phrase, everybody take a deep breath, isn't really, uh, doesn't translate well into, into Kurdish or Arabic. What do you think they would do? Does the United States have the reins on the Kurds, or, or do they have the, the means to strike a revenge blow against the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps? You know, there's some politics here with, with what Baghdad's going to want to do. They, they, are some, they are an autonomous region. I, I don't know what their direct response capabilities are, but I have no doubt whatever they can respond with. And I, I would make an assumption that the U.S. would support some kind of a strike over there if it's possible. Uh, yeah, because if we're going to use a proxy to go directly at the Iranians, you really can't do much better than the Iraqi Kurds, can you? No, I, and, you know, I'm not sure what technology they have to do this, but I think, and we spoke about this right after um, October 7th, a, a few days after the attack, and I think that there is no doubt that at some point the or, uh, the Israelis are going to deal with the Iranians directly. I think they're going to clean up Gaza. They're almost there. They're probably going to do some kind of a DMZ in the south of Lebanon where they have to push those guys back farther. And then something maybe in Syria. But at some point, I really believe they're going to go in and deal with some of these Iranian facilities that they don't need getting any bigger. So. Uh, yeah, because the, the Israelis are probably going to go in there and mow the lawn in uh, in Syria as a part two of this whole thing. So, uh, well, thank, mm -hmm. thanks for joining us today. Yeah, I'm sorry about this, but we'll we'll follow it because I, I definitely think that this doesn't seem like the kind of thing they sit back and take without having a vote. So we'll we'll see what the uh, what the Kurds do back to Iran. All right. Well, that. hey, let me mention my uh, work too. That I'm working with Highlander Six. Just go to Highlander6.com, and me and Greg Allen will help you out. Uh, is it Highlander and then Numeral6 or S-I-X? Numeral6.com. Okay, Highlander6.com. Uh, all right, perfect. Yeah. Tom Bigley, thanks for uh, joining us with your inside knowledge of this uh, this incident. Thank you very much, uh, and uh, take, take it easy or any way you want, and we'll be back. to the Brian Suit Show on AM 770 KTTH. You know my little rule about uh, better to have it, not need it, than need it, not have it? I do know that rule. I totally violate it when, it when it comes to a rain jacket. I don't know why, but like I wear what I wear, then whatever I'm wearing inside, I just get in the car 
and come here, live my little life, and uh, the uh, the whole thing. That's what I did today. So if it is raining, I'm not getting out of the car. It's a sharp look. Is that, um, a, is that a vest you're wearing? It's a vest I'm wearing. Reminds me of what Marty McFly wears in Back to the Future. Yeah, it his kind was, of is. His was red. Yours is blue. I know. Remember, like, like plaid shirt, then like an orange or red vest. <laughs> And that that was so eighties. It's it's coming back. It's making a comeback. But uh, I like it because and and by the way, folks, hey, clothing salespeople, if it has a Napoleon pocket, I'm buying it. Uh, it, it educate this, me on the Napoleon you know, up, pocket up here on the up, upper left chest region. Yeah, it's very French. Yeah, it's one. No, no, no. It's uh, it's I don't know why it's called that, and it's kind of a stupid name because it would it'd make a good uh, right thinking French hater not buy a document. Well, so. How much do the NATO countries spend? Well, there is the general 2% rule that 2% of your GDP needs to be uh, NATO member nations all make payments to cover the operating expenses of the organization. And 2% of their GDP on defense should be the the goal of ensuring it's not a hard and fast rule, but we do have a list. Um, and it, it has a real cost, by the way. Poland is at the top, 3.9%, which, you know, thanks for catching up. Uh, and I don't know what, what – we don't have Sweden's numbers yet because they're not officially in uh, NATO yet. But they do pretty darn good. And they have – and Finland uh, as well. Uh, even even Greece, which is broke, is over the 3% uh, line. It goes Poland, United States, Greece, all over 3%. And then the Baltic countries, Estonia and Lithuania, over 2.5%. Uh, the UK is way down there, barely treading water at 2%, but they do have two aircraft carriers. Uh, Germany is way down there, 1.57%. So maybe they should, you know, do their part and uh, the whole thing. Wow. And, and the the um, the human cost of this, by the way, is is that America makes up your problems, your, your, your gap. The, the Germans, there was a point when Obama was president, when he was kind of talking out loud about let's all do our part and there was one mission that nato had to contribute to and it was isaf it was the afghanistan mission which was officially called international security and assistance force but pretty early on it was pretty clear that it really stood for i saw americans fighting and so the germans we 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 logistically assigned you know a by 2009, 2010, uh, Afghanistan was a fairly, as, as they say, mature theater, meaning that there was a PX in every every forward operating base and, and the whole thing. And so on a day-to-day -day basis, in all the little subdivisions that Afghanistan was in, they needed, uh, they, they didn't say eight helicopters. It was expressed as um, tons of cargo capacity. And so that means like 20 tons a day. Every contingent from Denmark to Turkey, whatever, they're, they're moving stuff around. And so for America, that meant, uh, okay, we well, need the capacity to move 20 tons in a 24-hour day. That's a battalion of Chinooks, okay? So the Germans one year got that. They raised their hand and said, oh, we can do this. Yes, we have the helicopters to move the, the 10 tons per day. And so it came down to crunch time, and they didn't. They were short helicopters, and they said V because they had to send, they had to send for every helicopter they sent. There had had to be a backup, and it had to be working and spare parts. So anyway, anyway, we we were left out in the cold by NATO allies many times, and you know who who made up the shortfall? 
the National Guard. Oftentimes, just back, I, I know an Oregon uh, Army National Guard unit that came back from a long year in Iraq. They barely got all their stuff back to Pendleton. And then they were told, well, because the Germans don't have enough helicopters to go to Afghanistan, get what, guess what your, where your 2010 is going to be? And that's how it went down. Not, not well, we're going to have some, uh, you know, personal counseling or anything like that. It was pack, don't unpack. Now you're going back, but this time to Afghanistan. And so it didn't, didn't, didn't make for a lot of love of NATO. And all that, and then uh, one, one not, not a friend of mine, but someone I know got back, and all their his wife had put all their all of his stuff in the garage. But this is a second second tour. All of his stuff is in the garage, and who stacked it up like that? Well, her new boyfriend, and he said, "If you need a pickup to help move the stuff, I can I can give you a hand there." And by the way, I like your dog uh, and all that. So that's that's how that's your cooperation. I mean, so when Trump came along and said and 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 you know started spewing the truth about how this worked, that, that hey, why is it ever since the Cold War we've still been paying the freight on all this stuff? Uh, it, it woke him up. Um, and okay, so so he doesn't know that it's not AAA or. Uh, Homeowners Association, okay, fine. Someone will cut them straight, but it hardly is rocking NATO to its foundation or, or anything. So this is the, the SPD story. Guess what? Cop culture, no matter what, as that texture said, no matter what, you know, if toxic masculinity is a sin, then who do you expect to pull you out of a car when you're on, on your roof off 99? Who's going to show up, and what are they going to do to open to force that door open? Probably a couple tons of uh, toxic masculinity, masculinity. But anyway, what was described as a report rocking SPD? In the report it's nearly twenty pages long, and tonight I spoke with the director, the uh, researcher who interviewed the women inside the department about the culture at the Seattle Police Department. Now, inside this lengthy document, it includes allegations of sexual harassment and a toxic work environment. Quotes pulled from the report recall women's experiences with the Seattle Police Department. And guess what? There's some bad ones in the report. Because uh, there's a rule of thumb that you should all remember if you're part of a toxic masculine culture like we are here at the Radio Ranch. Many common themes include masculine culture, expectations for women's and double standards. One of the interviewees said that she was, quote, in grad school and had a sergeant tell her she looked yummy in front of a bunch of officers. Another one said that she was in the car with someone when they started asking her why she was single and why she doesn't date. The researcher said that another theme. Uh, the, the rule of thumb, and there's no there's no clever rhyme or any you know r or you, better to have it not needed than needed not have it is uh, basically if you would be offended at a man saying that to your daughter, then you don't say it, and that's kind of the the way to go on that one. That but that being said, I, you don't I I don't I don't chalk that stuff up to toxic masculinity or masculinity or, or whatever. Well, it, it's a culture where, by the way, you kind of need that. You need to be in charge. Let's not make the same mistake we did with the Me Too movement, and that is uh, not all offenses are created equal. 
So as part of this report, some woman in the department was characterized as yummy. Yeah, that's extremely inappropriate. You don't say that. Uh, whoever did that uh, should be punished accordingly. But if, if in a friendly conversation, if someone says, hey, weren't you dating anybody? If you're going to equate that with calling someone yummy, you're making a big mistake. You have to be able to differentiate things. And I mean, uh, if you do that publicly, you should publicly apologize and the whole thing. Because, I mean, I, I got to tell you, back in the day in music radio, you know, when you got close to your staff, it was amazingly unconventional and uncomfortable. What do you mean close to your staff? Like, like I, I mean, when, when you got tied as an air staff, you know, everything is, uh, there's no such thing as off limits. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, everything's appropriate. And it would all end in firings in 2024. Well, things have changed. The environment has changed. I mean, it's not 1986 okay, or 1993 anymore. And life, as Thomas Sowell says, is not full of solutions, this side of heaven. It's full of trade-offs. And so one of the trade-offs here is, well, how do you get to know someone? Well, humor is a big part of forming a relationship with someone, right? But sometimes in the past that would cross the line. And so have we gone too far in our you know, language restrictions and what can and can't be joked about? Maybe, but what what's the trade-off? Well, we have an, a, a more appropriate work environment, but at the cost of maybe sacrificing some relational camaraderie between colleagues. And so, again, you kind of look for that balance. Where is that sweet spot, so to speak? Yeah, and I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, a downside is that when I started here years ago, that, that person... Right there, we, we used to be able to Who are you pointing talk at? freely, right? Uh -huh, uh -huh. 2024, no, can, cannot. A lot of people feel like they're walking on eggshells, and I, I get that. Yeah. I am something to KTTH.